This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Author Andy Crouch says that we're doing it all wrong. Smartphones aren't giving us the life we're looking for. We asked him how to fix it and whether he'd ever own a robot dog. This is Device and Virtue. Hey everyone, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Adam, today we have a Device and Virtue first, the first time we've ever had a return guest to the podcast. Fantastic. Author Andy Crouch (laughs) is very exciting, one of our favorite thinkers about technology and faith. And so there's a reason why we'd have him back. Yeah. He wrote a new book this year called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Right when you open this book, he starts talking about how when an infant is born, it's looking for a face. But then he says, just like Siri. (laughs) I mean, it's like just killing it, right? Immediately gripping you. He has all these deep insights about the way that technology has sort of changed from being something that humans grow stronger with Mm. to something we sort of, we grow weaker with. Yeah, our skills start to atrophy over time. And we lose the abilities that we once had with older technologies and tools. So there's a difference I love how he walks us through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I also love that at the end, we ask him a bunch of dumb questions. (laughs) No, right? (laughs) Using all our old podcasts to ask him to settle some debates and what he thinks about things. So you got to make it to the end of the interview for that. Yeah. But I know folks will enjoy it. So I guess without further ado, here's Andy Crouch. Well, Andy Crouch, welcome back to Device and Virtue. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be back. Yeah, thank you. I have heard that you were in the Northeast. How is the fall in the Northeast these days? I'm further Northeast than usual, yeah, in the Boston area. It has been spectacular. This Mm. this autumn in New England, I mean, it's always nice, but it's been amazing. I grew up in the tropical climate, so getting to red and yellow leaves was something of movies for me. (laughs) Oh, you have to see it. I mean, it's such a cliche, and all these people do travel (laughs) to see it, but... But this year, it just is a- as spectacular as you can imagine to see all these colors and on a sunny day or a rainy day. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. amazing. I-, I thought with you writing books about technology that you'd just be in on your phone instead of outside. But I'm <laughs> I'm Google image fall color. <laughs> the last time you were on with us, you had your daughter, Amy, with you. Amy Crouch, the author of My TechWise Life. That's right. That great. We loved that interview with her. And if folks haven't heard it, they really should go listen to it. How is she doing? Is she in college? What she's up to? Amy's doing great. And I have to say, I think I and everyone who interviews me was a bit spoiled by the experience of doing the interviews with my daughter because she's so good like on her own. And then we together had this wonderful dynamic. You know, I'm promoting this new book that I wrote by myself and I'm feeling very lonely doing it. Amy has now graduated from college and now is working for an amazing place called Laity Lodge in Texas, which is a 
retreat center, kind of a very special environment for faith, life, the arts. They have a huge commitment to the arts and music. And Amy's just part of their team making their events happen and is just totally loving it. The only thing we don't like is she's awfully far away in Texas. That's cool. Wow. Really thriving. wow. That's awesome. Well, send our regards to her. We still love her book. Yeah. But you have a new book, and that's why we get to have you on today. Here we go again. The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming <laughs> Relationship in a Technological World. Wow. Yeah. Relationship in a Technological World. I mean, the question I guess we have to start with is, what <laughs> is the life we're looking for? What is the life we are looking for? So two things I think would frame it. One is, and this is where the, the book begins. A friend of mine who writes a lot of books told me it was the best first sentence of a book he's read all year. So that was encouraging. Oh, wow. And the first sentence of the oh, book wow. is recognition is the first human quest. So mm. the quest to be recognized. Yes. And so I think, first of all, the life we're looking for is a life in which we're known. And so the first part of the book is really about what is it to be a person? A person is someone who can be known rather than just mm. something that can be perhaps used. So we're looking for a life in which we are known as the persons we are. And that in some ways is very elemental and in other ways is very elusive, I think. So that's one poll maybe of the book yeah at the beginning of the book you talk about the infant which was so yeah. striking to me the newborn baby who spends their first hours just being able to see eight to ten inches from their face but all they're looking for is to be recognized by another mm -hmm. face yes is is a face and they are primed in this mysterious way because they've mm -hmm. literally never seen a visual input before and mm. yet from moment one if you mm. put a face in front of an infant in that range where their eyes are naturally focused mm. they will fixate on on that human face because that's what we're looking for what we were looking for the moment we were born was i, I love this phrase from kurt thompson we were looking for someone looking for us and we were looking for a face oh. that was looking for our face. And of course, we were primed neurologically, not just in pattern recognition, but in the mirror neurons that would allow us very early on to start to, in a, an embodied and cognitive way, experience what that other face was experiencing and vice versa. Mm. So that just naturally adults, when they interact with infants, mirror the expressions, whether of happiness or sadness or whatever on the mm. infant's face. And it's part of how we learn who we are is through mm. other people reading back to us or mirroring back to us who we are. Then I kind of com compare and contrast that to the personalized world. So we, we're looking for a personal world where we will be known and recognized as persons. But in our technological world, especially today, we find ourselves in a personalized world that does actually also recognize our face. Like my smartphone does this. <laughs> when <laughs> right. I look at it the right way, it lets me in, you know, it, it's, it's an authentication mechanism. And not only does it let me in and recognize my face, but it, it addresses me as Andy, like Siri knows my name and, oh, uh, and knows my voice to some extent. And so do all the online vendors that I use, you know, hello, Andy, welcome to Amazon <laughs> today. And this personalized experience, which is part of life in our digital world now, I think is so powerful because it hooks into this deep desire we have to know that somebody's paying attention to us and mm. wants to know what we need, what we want, how to get it. And maybe that leads to the other thing that I don't thematize, use a really uh, big word in the book quite quite so explicitly but there is another thing we're looking for another life we're looking for it's a life of power a life mm -hmm. where we can where what we do matters mm -hmm. efficacy agency that i can make a difference and that i can get what i want from the world and so this book is also about 
in a way, how those two things are in some tension and the ways that we've gained power through technology is often mm. at the expense of the personal recognition, which I think is the deepest thing, you know? So mm. we're looking for love, <laughs> but we're also <laughs> looking for power. And when push comes to shove, we often choose power in ways mm. that undercut love. And this book is kind of an exploration, both of what's gone wrong in the technological story in particular, and maybe a way back. Mm. At least I think that's what it's about. Does that sound plausible <laughs> to you guys having read it? Yeah. I'm going to say that I loved when you ran across personal versus personalized and made the observation that personalized is always a function of not a person, really a personal experience. <laughs> it's, mm. it's exactly. from a technology or a print shop or something trying to sell you something. And I, I smiled because yeah. you have uh, such a way of doing this with mm -hmm. words that are right in front of us, but get us to see new things. And I think mm -hmm. you've done that real consistently in your writing. And that was a good one. I'm going to have to steal it. I will occasionally give you credit. But, but yeah, it's true, isn't it? We live in a personalized world that's impersonal. Exactly. And it's not just a surprising like juxtaposition. It is intrinsically the case that the more personalized your world is, the less personal your world is. Because if, mm. the, if your world was actually personal, you would not need it to be personalized. Mm. Not just actually the machines I'm interacting with, but even frankly, the people that I come mm. across in my day do not in fact have a personal relationship with me right. that we have to kind of mechanize and give them a script, you know, so I call the call center for my yeah. airline or my <laughs> bank or, you know, whatever. And that person is given a script to say, hello, Andrew, we're so grateful that you're a Chase card customer. You know, yeah. it's precisely because they don't actually have any idea who I am because I know that because they call me Andrew, which only my parents call me that. No one else in my life calls me that except my immediate family and my banker, you know, and the script calls me that. So it's insofar as we live in an impersonal world that we live in a personalized one that compensates for the anonymity of so much of our lives. I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about how personalized the ads had gotten on Instagram and they felt like, man, Instagram knows exactly what I want. Knows me far too well. <laughs> it knows me far too well. And I would say it, some, some ways the same thing, but they had sort of surrendered to it. They're like, I'm kind of okay with it because everything <laughs> they show me, I love and I want to buy. I want it. I'm like, no, no. It's like the guy in the matrix who's like, I'll eat the steak. Give me the steak. <laughs> Give me my personalized feed of consumption. That's, that's a great that's old tech movie. Old school. Friends. I love it. Old school. I know. Th this is maybe a terrible idea, but what they should do is start giving you advertising, suggesting what you should buy your significant other or your family for Christmas based on oh. their browsing history. That would be another level. Oh God, surely it's coming. You're right. It has to be coming. So-and-so liked this on their Instagram, you know, you yeah, should buy it for yeah, them. Yeah. We should cut that so no one ever thinks of that idea. <laughs> With the baby's faces, I have a theory about cute babies, and it is mm -hmm. that babies are cute so that every time they encounter another face, that person is smiling back at them. Yes. Because every time we see a cute baby, we just want to smile at it. We want its attention. Yeah. And yeah. for the first two years of their life, all they see are people smiling at them. And we need to know wow. that this world is a place that is smiling back at us in some way. Yes, yes, yes. Andy, another theme in your book is this idea of the instrument and the device. I'm wondering if you could unpack your thinking around that, because I have felt it really valuable in how I think about my relationship to technology. 
Yeah. So the background on this, I suppose, would be that something's happened over the past roughly 100 years as the technological project really got going that kind of detached the action and activity of our devices from persons, Mm -hmm. from the personal. And I think we all see that and feel it. Mm -hmm. And the way that I named that initially is through this word that I pick up from the philosopher Albert Borgman, who's shaped my thinking so much Mm -hmm. and my Mm -hmm. living, actually, since I read his book like 25 years ago. And that's the word devices. This is a very central word to Albert's work, which is that we live in what he calls the device paradigm. So it's not just that we have a lot of devices in our world, but we kind of live with this idea. This really is the best possible way to deploy technology is to have ever more devices. And fundamentally, a device is something that takes over providing some good thing for you, from you. Mm -hmm. It takes it over from you for your benefit. Albert's paradigmatic example of this is the shift from the hearth to the furnace. So the hearth being the fireplace, mm. the, the center of the home, the Latin word for mm. hearth in a very interesting way is focus, F-O-C-U-S, mm. focus in Latin, focus, we get the R word focus from it. And the, the focal point of a traditional home, a pre-technological home is, is a source of warmth, right? Right. And we displace that. And by the way, a source of warmth that requires a lot of attention from human mm. beings. Human beings have to build the fire. Human beings have to tend the fire. Human mm. beings have to cover the fire when they go to the bed so that in the morning, there's still a way to light the morning fire. You know, you can fill in all <laughs> the human activity that focalizes, you could say our centers around this hearth. And Albert points out, but way back in 1985 or 87, whatever the date is of his book, Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life, that the furnace is this beautiful simplification of all that. (laughs) (laughs) It, It just provides me heat. Whenever I need it, without me even really needing to tell it, once I've hooked up to a thermostat that just auto regulates, it's this thing that operates autonomously with its own source of power, with its own feedback mechanisms for when mm. it's doing what it needs to do, when to start, when to stop. And it's completely at the edge of my home. You know, our right. furnace in our home in Philadelphia is down in the basement in a room I ever, hardly ever go into, <laughs> hardly ever think about it. Right. So it, it's this shift from these tools you could also think of like the human history of tool making uh-huh. that were at the very heart of human activity and human skill getting displaced by devices which don't require skill, don't uh-huh. necessarily require a human being in, to be involved at all. This is a, in some ways delicious experience to have something just <laughs> operate on its own and give you what you want, you know. My wife and I actually have moved from Boston for a year and into a little apartment that does not have a dishwasher. (laughs) So uh, the most important robot in our life is our dishwashing robot. I mean, it's not a very impressive robot. It kind of stays put under the counter, but it's still a robot by any kind of reasonable definition. And we we no longer have one. And so we've like regressed from Mm. the dishwashing device where you just put all those dishes in, close it, push one little button, the auto button. I don't know. Why are there even other buttons on that thing? I just always want the auto wash button. Let it decide when the things are clean. (laughs) And I wake up in the morning and I have clean dishes, right? Well, now we're back in the land of tools and dishwashing soap and sponges. And every single dish you create, you have to wash. It's a very disconcerting experience to like regress to this caveman level of existence. You start reusing spoons. You're like, the calculus changes. It It does. (laughs) You're like, I can scrape that plate and put something else right on there. Yeah, lunch and dinner is fine. Yeah. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, so that's the device idea. Devices are are quite discontinuous with the hi- human history of tool making. And this is where I, you know, I think you guys are aware 
and your listeners will be too, but there's kind of this ongoing debate. When people talk about technology, one of the most common things people say is, well, we've always had technology. We've had hammers. Mm. We've had, Mm -hmm. you know, dishwashing soap. We've had, you know, we've had tools all along. And so we just now have new tools. And I completely dissent from this way of reading the story because I think once they became autonomous and once Mm. they started requiring less and less skill and less and less engagement, I think we were now in a very different phase of the story. Obviously, Mm. there is some continuity between ancient or recent tool making and devices, Mm -hmm. but devices are distinctly different. And basically, the way they're distinctly different is they don't ask very much of you as a person. Mm. Actually, as an interesting counterexample, we have in our kitchen now a ceramic knife. I don't know if you guys have experienced oh, these new uh, new like materials, Kyocera. Yeah, they're often white in color. I don't know if they have to be white, but ours is. And ours is made by Kyocera, and it's this new material just recently developed in the last like 20 or 30 years that's just unbelievably sharp and effective huh. as a knife, great for cutting tomatoes and that kind of thing. You know, that is an amazing tool. And it's a, it's a high tech tool in the sense that we didn't know how to fabricate these things until the last couple of decades, but it totally is still a tool. Like, in fact, it requires a great deal of skill. I would never hand this even to a 12 year old because it's so sharp, you know, unless you really are paying attention and have good knife mm. technique and so forth, you're, it's dangerous, mm. but it's also super effective. But not a device in any way. And the device story is this kind of fork in the road or fork in the software, if if you know that, like a GitHub fork, (laughs) into this new idea that wouldn't it be great if the world just worked without us? Mm, mm. (laughs) You know, we could talk about why I think that's not so great after all, or at least only great in certain ways. But you asked about what's the alternative. And this is the other big idea in the book on this topic is what if we had all the scientific knowledge and in a sense, all the technology, but redirected it not towards things that ask less and less of us, which are devices, mm-hmm. but things that actually more fully engage us, which I am picking up and offering this word instruments. Mm-hmm. So when you think about scientific instruments, which my wife, who's a physicist, uses very high technology. I mean, there's yeah. certain, we would certainly, if you walk into her lab, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is so high tech. She has lasers. She has huh. In her PhD research, dilution refrigerators that make things really cold. She has, you know, all the computers, all this stuff. But, but these are scientific instruments. And the, the reason they're not really scientific devices, except in a very narrow sense, is that they don't do anything on their own. They don't make any discoveries on their own. Uh, a scientist has to be fully involved as quite a whole person, actually, because science, if it's done really mm-hmm. well, is not just mental. It's quite embodied. It involves a lot of physical skill. It involves a lot of emotion, even. It involves a lot of collaboration and relationship. So all that scientific knowledge and and all that kind of stack of technology is put at the service of and embedded in a human engagement with the world that develops the human being further mm-hmm. and adds to our understanding of the world. Or you think about medical instruments, which are, are used by persons caring for other persons, and they can be super high tech, laparoscopic mm-hmm. surgery. My mm-hmm. wife happened to have also been operated on laparoscopically a couple of years ago. And, you know, people call that device, the robot, the Da Vinci surgical robot, but it's huh. not, it's not like a factory robot. Huh. <laughs> you don't wheel the patient in and be like, okay, robot, you know, auto wash. <laughs> <laughs> Go in and do the thing. It's, it's, it's a surgeon uses it and, a, yeah. and it, it assists the surgeon in very important ways, but it, it requires tremendous surgical skill and judgment to use mm-hmm. that thing, even though it is also super high tech. And then musical instruments, which can be very complex things from a fabrication point of view. The modern grand piano, which I play 
relies on metallurgy and insights into physics. And, you know, it's a patented thing that allows it to resonate kind of in deeper ways than earlier mm. pianos did. Mm. But it's not a player piano. It's not, a, right. it's not a device. Right. It's an instrument. So what I think could have happened is we could have asked all along for more instruments. And instead, I think we thought, oh, it wouldn't it be great to live in a world of devices? And I mm -hmm. think actually it isn't mm -hmm. that great to live in a world of devices. And I think it is great to live in a world of instruments, which is why this is not an anti-technology book. It's a book about redirecting what we ask mm -hmm. technology to be away from mm -hmm. devices primarily and towards instruments primarily. I've found that paradigm of the device and the instrument really helpful for me. But can we just pitch you some different technologies and you can tell us, is this a de device? Is this an instrument? Okay. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Yeah, so a microscope. Do you see that more as an instrument, more as a device? What's your thought? 100% instrument, I would say. The microscope doesn't look at anything by itself. It doesn't come to any judgments about what it's seeing. It requires you to know what to ask it to look at and look for. Yeah, instrument, instrument, instrument. And think about the human experience of it, too. You know, my wife, I draw on Catherine's work a lot because it's so high-tech. She's an experimental physicist. And did a lot of work with electron microscopes at one stage of her work. And, you know, that's a highly mediated thing. You're not looking through a lens. You know, you're, yeah, you're using absolutely. a computer-driven interface to produce images. But it's still so much about the human being judging and perceiving and evaluating. It's not that you can put your eye up to something and see something, but you still, right. it requires mathematical knowledge, all this skill required to know what you're looking at and know why it matters. So, yeah, I would say microscope of any kind, 100% instrument. Cool. Okay, how about we just recently did an episode about the Dolly artificial intelligence art generator. <laughs> you know what this is where you can type? Oh, I know. I've been playing around with it. Right. Yeah. And so have we actually and really enjoyed it. You can type a phrase like a monkey eating an apple instead of a banana in yeah. the style of Picasso and it will create that and image, a unique image for you. Is that a device or an instrument? Yes, that's a trickier one. So <laughs> I would, I would say most people who use it are going to use it as a device. That is, mm -hmm. I have no idea how to make this image myself. I just want this picture of a monkey eating an apple, and I want it to look like Picasso. Give me that. And if that's really what you're doing with it, then it's pretty device-like, I would say. Okay. Because really, what does that develop in me? So, you know, one test, instruments always develop the person using them in some way. They extend the capabilities and skill. They require skill and they develop skill. Devices mm. do not require skill and and do not and cannot develop skill. So no matter how many prompts like that I put into Dolly, I'm not going to become a better artist, painter. I might possibly learn to see the world in new ways. Maybe I become a better seer of the world, possibly. 
the way that if I go to a museum and see, you know, paintings, Mm -hmm. I might Mm -hmm. see the world differently after a certain amount of time. But here's the tricky thing, the interesting thing, actually, the way that Dolly's actually going to be used. Have you heard about Prompt Wars? Uh Uh-uh. So this is like the new live video game. So, you know, people like play video games competitively, professionally in front of big audiences, even huge stadiums, right? Especially in Asia. So Prompt Wars is a new kind of video game where you have several contestants in a room with an audience and each of them, their job is to give Dolly a prompt that creates like the most remarkable result. Because (laughs) your example, monkey eating an apple in the style of Picasso is very simple. But Mm -hmm, when you look at when professional artists start iterating with Dolly, they quickly realize if you give it a really complex, you can give it like 150, 300 words of of Mm. a specification You can actually generate much more surprising and interesting things. And so these prompt wars are, are basically competing to give the, (laughs) the AI the most insightful, surprising or whatever prompt that produces the most amazing result. Now, once you're starting to do that, I actually think that's in a way it's playing Dolly like an instrument. You will end up with artists who have the skill to elicit from the AI images Mm -hmm. of a much higher quality and and level of interest Mm -hmm. than you or I, assuming we are just amateur Dolly users, will ever have. So I would say almost all computational interfaces are somewhere between a device and an instrument, depending on who's using them. Right. And they even have examples on the Dolly website of the way they're featuring different artists right now who are using it. Oh, interesting. Um, Maybe as a way of countering the narrative that this is completely sort of replaces artists. And and we talked about the artist that created the magazine cover story for Cosmo magazine. And she sort of has a TikTok about all the different iterations and designs she went through. I agree with you that some people approach it differently. You know, are we thinking about the new possibilities or affordances that these kind of tools create where they generate people that are consumers and create the possibility of them becoming creators? So the kid that went into it thinking I'm just having fun because a lot of people start with mm. technologies as toys. Yeah, yep. and then they realize they could do something useful, mm. so they start they move mm-hmm, to a tool, mm-hmm. and then they eventually and then they mm-hmm. become skilled. Ooh. And yeah, that's good. And then those skills become environmental, but that's the toy tools uh, ah. environment framework that I use with the way technologies work. Right. So I love the fact that you're saying there's these two possibilities, but I wonder if there's potential for human learning and development in some of these ways that you're talking about. Well, I'm sure there is to some extent. Now, I would want to say or add that I don't think the de- the learning and development is always same in quality or quantity with every possible tool or instrument. Mm-hmm. My go-to example of this is, you know, like FIFA football, which is a video game, a mm-hmm. very successful and many, many times iterated video game. And there's no doubt that if you spend a lot of time playing FIFA football, you can become a very, very accomplished FIFA football player and way better yeah, than the person sure. who just sits down for the first time. So in that sense, it has some instrumental and skill developing qualities. Sure. However, I would say there's some way in which that development taps out at a fairly shallow level compared to the decades of investment that's needed to become an actual football association, football, (laughs) soccer player in the quote unquote real world, where you are actually reconfiguring not just your brain and your fine motor skills, but your brain, body, fine motor, gross motor, 
relational, like all the things that go into being like a professional level or even just a right. really, really good amateur soccer player. Right. I can't prove it, but I believe that the ultimate result of that kind of development is more significant and also ultimately more rewarding for an individual human being and for the world around them than than whatever development happens when you play the video game version. Mm -hmm. And one way to think of it, maybe this does try to get at why it works that way, is that if you are a really good professional soccer player, my understanding is if you sit down to play FIFA football and you just master the interface relatively quickly, you become a really good FIFA football player. <laughs> but if you play a lot of FIFA football and go out on the soccer field, like you are not going to have any <laughs> success, right? Same with Madden football. Like if you're an NFL player, NFL players play Madden football for fun because they're so right, good right. at it, right? Right, right. But right. Madden football players cannot go out and play NFL football. <laughs> so there's a different kind of development. But just to argue again, because I do this, maybe the metaphor is you're accepting the frame too closely. So you're assuming that to be useful, a soccer game, video game needs to translate to a human ability to sort of play physical soccer. And maybe like in the, what's the novel where a boy learns a video game, but actually he's fighting strategy for a war at the end of the Ender's game. Ender's game. Ender's Ender's game. game. Thank you. And maybe there are other skills that some of these video games translate to that are not, of course, playing soccer, but they are maybe directing digital strategy later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't doubt that they do, but I'm calling attention to the possibility that not all development is ultimately as significant and good for us. It's not all equal. And I wouldn't at all say that that there's no value in developing skill in a in an entirely digital domain. It's just that it might be that the opportunity cost of that is significant. Because right. for now at least, our digital world does not help us very much be the fullest persons that I think we could be. In the book I talk about this phrase from the Shema Israel, you know, love the Lord your God with your heart, mm-hmm. your, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I just don't think all activities fully engage us, heart, soul, mind, and strength mm-hmm. with the world. Mm-hmm. I think that painting, to go back to Dolly, let's say, you know, plein air painting where you're outdoors, you are trying to represent, see and represent in some meaningful way what you're seeing of nature, let's say, for classic plein air. I think something's happening to you as a heart, soul, mind, strength complex <laughs> in that development of skill and attention that may never be adequately replaced by becoming a really good Dolly prompter. So it's not that Dolly doesn't develop skill or isn't an instrument for real artistic creativity, but I will tell you, I think people who have spent time doing plein air will be better at using Dolly as an instrument than people who haven't. Let me pitch one more to you that's a little bit different, but I think gets at some of these issues too. Duolingo, the language acquisition app. People are engaging using the app, learning German or French or English or whatever. It removes the teacher altogether. So the relational personal aspect is gone, but it's personalized maybe in some way. What are your thoughts? Is that a tool? Can we use that as an instrument or is it more of a device? How would you think about that? Yeah, that's such a good one. I would say mostly instrument. And okay. I've used it myself before a trip to Italy. <laughs> like, uno, due, tre, I My problem is I, I have some French and Spanish and they compete for Italian in my brain. Like they overlap too much. <laughs> right, you know? right, so, right, uh, right. 
Uh, it's horrible. Like you end up speaking <laughs> this weird mixture of three romance languages. But yes, in, it's an instrument. It's developing skill. It's it, it requires the engagement of the user. It doesn't speak. Yeah. It's not like Google Translate. Like that would be the device. Like I'll just tell mm, it what I mm. want. I'll say my English thing and it'll just say the Italian for me. Right. No, absolutely. Is there neurological change going on as I mm. use a Duolingo? Yes. Mm. Two things that I think are significant, at least. One is I think every Duolingo user finds no matter how far they go in the app, that when you land in the real world environment of speaking an actual human language in situ, as it were, in Italy, mm-hmm. you are just amazed at how unprepared you are. <laughs> like you can right. know all the grammar, you can be able to answer all the little Duolingo prompts and get the little Duolingo bird or whoever it is to look happy when you when you do it right. <laughs> and then you are with an actual Italian person and you're like, I am barely able to make myself understood. <laughs> so there's, the, a, I think, an unbridgeable gap between the heart, soul, mind, strength experience of inhabiting ultimately a, a cultural linguistic environment mm, because it's mm. not actually just language. Yeah. It's not just rules of a game, uh, syntax and vocabulary. Sure. It's, sure. it's imbe- expression. It's nonverbal. There's so much. I don't think those apps are ever going to teach you. So mm. so the first thing I would note is it's an instrument that gets you a certain it gives you a little head start. I I was actually talking about that. This is a different thing. Can I ask you well cuz I want to tag onto that so Google Translate. And Google Translate yeah. of course is the app that sort of in some cases for some languages allows live translation between two people. Yeah. It doesn't oh, yeah. require you to learn the language. Effective. I can when I was hosting a refugee family and they spoke Arabic, I had no Arabic, but I could put the smartphone between yeah. us. We would tap go, yeah. and then and then um, you could go back and, and forth. My counterpart would would talk back and forth. It was a little bit chunky. It wasn't anything yeah. close to the Star Trek translators on their yeah. uniforms, but it was still remarkable and allowed us to talk yeah. essentially with no. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't learning. I was doing that. That's much more device like. And this is a well, I go with all this device paradigm thing, and where I would might push back on Borgman as well. Isn't all of this allowing us to move our human functioning to another place. So the Google Translate right. didn't allow me to engage and work and learn, learn and Arabic. become that better person, right. as you're talking about, as a language learner. <laughs> but it did allow me to communicate with a refugee family from Syria and take care of their needs for food, clothing, shelter, and relationship. And I, as a human, totally. have limited capacity and so these devices, right. instead of spending 10 years learning Arabic, yeah. the dishwasher allows maybe perhaps, and then not to be stereotypical, but allows like your wife or you to, to, to go be a scientist because totally, she totally, can totally. use these other things. So the devices create time, create space, these self-driving cars. Maybe we don't drive ourselves around anymore. And that's very device-like. But now I can become a fine artist because I'm thinking about all the art in my head or working <laughs> on it in the car. Isn't there something where devices don't always draw down on us? For sure. And uh, what a hypocrite I would be if I didn't acknowledge some very fundamental truth of what you're saying, because I use so many of these things and we're using them right now. We didn't all get on a horse and arrange to meet in Western Pennsylvania to have this conversation. Like we dialed up a Squadcast <laughs> interface. I mean, right. and, it would have been fun. Yes. It was, you know, yes. <laughs> so no doubt at all. And this is why I'm, I'm really not against any of these things. What I am against is making the device the paradigm for the good life, first of all. Mm-hmm. That, oh, if only I never had to learn a language. No, actually, yeah. I think I think if you decided, I am so happy I can be a monolingual English speaker 
And Google Translate just deals with all those foreign people for me. I mean, I'm not saying that's how you were feeling, but the device paradigm would be, oh, thank goodness. I never have to immerse myself in a context where I'm a learner again, where I don't really know what's going on, where I need other people. I'm dependent Mm. on other people. Most human beings probably have been multilingual in history because at at least at edges of human society, you've got to be able to interact with your neighbors and they don't talk and act the way you do. So if we decide, oh, I'm so glad that's no longer required to be human, I think we're missing something. So They are undeniably useful and they do free us up for other things. But you have to ask empirically, are we in fact using our time in the self-driving car in rigorous iterative ways, develop the next great Dolly prompt for our Dolly art exhibition that we're (laughs) mounting at the Whitney Museum? Or are we like, where's the Netflix? Like, give me something to watch because this is so boring. Right. So it's so true. And by the way, this actually gets to the other thing I wanted to say about Duolingo. So for one thing, it's only going to get you to a certain very, what it turns out is a very, very elemental level of proficiency. And thank goodness you can do that without taxing the patience of your Italian speaking friend. But the other thing is you look at the quit rate on Duolingo. It's unbelievable. Like how (laughs) quickly people are like, I don't have time for this. The reason is because difficult things require relational support. Sure. To do truly mm. difficult things, you mm. have got to have another person in there with you mm. saying, you can do it. Mm. I believe in you. I'm not giving up on you. This mm. is why you need a piano teacher. This is why you need parents who tell you to keep practicing the piano when you're 11 and you're like, I'm going to quit piano now. Right. And same thing for language learning. Huh. For you huh. to get to mastery level of another human language that you didn't speak, I didn't hear as your mother tongue, there are going to have to be literal human beings who are like, you know what? You are worth it. I'm willing mm-hmm. to put up with your lack of grammar, your mistakes, <laughs> you know, because I have grown to love you and care about your progress. Even if I'm paid to be your teacher, it's not, no one would do it just for the money. Mm-hmm. Duolingo will not give you the personal support you need to become a different kind of person through an experience of suffering, which is what all genuine human development requires. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chris, in your example, where you're with your family that you're trying to support, I think because you are orienting your life to a very difficult thing, which is entering into the pain and need and possibility also that this refugee family faces, it doesn't bother me at all that you're using Google Translate because you are actually doubling down on the personal accompaniment of other persons Mm -hmm. that is our human vocation. But we've just got to realize most people most of the time are using the devices to back away from that kind of engagement with the world, not Mm. step into it. Mm. I mean, that's why your name of your podcast is so spot on (laughs) because the device is the thing that allows me to have a change in the world without having to change myself. And virtue is the pursuit of change through a kind of discipline. But the promise of devices, when they become the paradigm, is you can have the change you want without having to change, Mm. which is the opposite of virtue. I like that. We just got you to exegete the name of our podcast. (laughs) You heard it here first. Andy Crouch loves our podcast name. I do. I do. Thank you. Okay, okay. Well, Andy, I don't know if you know, but you are the very first guest we've had return to Device and Virtue. So congratulations on being oh, our first return yes, guest. Yes, thank you. Wow, I did not know that. And our listeners will know that we often don't do both of us interviewing on a podcast because we think just one of us is enough to handle. But <laughs> since you're a returning guest, this is our excuse for both of us to sort of jump on with you. But if you know Device and Virtue, Adam and I argue about different topics of technology, we get on every week, choose a topic that's sort of affecting our lives that we read about or whatever it is, and sort of figure it out. 
So we'd love for you to sort of settle some arguments by telling us what you would do in some mm-hmm. past <laughs> topics that we have covered for device okay. and virtue. And right. so I have quite a number of them. And okay. folks want to hear our whole discussion on these topics. They can go back and find the episode themselves and hear Adam and I argue it out. But we'll hear, <laughs> in this case, what you think. My hot take. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. I'm okay. so ready. Question number one. Would Andy Crouch drive an electric car? Oh, well, that is not a hypothetical. I do drive an electric car and I love it. I love, I've, I have the really amazing experience. Literally, I'm on the road. I never see a car that I wish I was driving, which has never happened to me before in my life. No, no, no. I drive, I drive a Tesla Model Y. It is absolutely fabulous. Even though I do not believe in any way that we're going to have full self-driving of the sort that Elon mm. Musk thinks we're going to have, by mm. the way, just mm. for my mm. other hot take. Oh, but, interesting. Oh, the electric car. Uh, it's been amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Fascinating. Okay. Question number two. Do you use Slack at work or a yes, chat app? All day. Thoughts? Good or bad? For vice or virtue, as we would say for fun. Vice or virtue. <laughs> is it personal? Well, crouchfamily.slack.com is where the Crouch family has all of our family chats. Wow. So not only do I use it at work, <laughs> when I come home from work, I log into the Crouch family Slack. No, of course, they actually <laughs> interoperate all day. So we're all in on Slack, and Slack is great for anything that doesn't require extended attention. So we have a two-minute rule at Praxis. Anything that takes more than two minutes to answer needs to go in email because it needs mm. to be done asynchronously. Because if you try to load people up with 20-minute or let alone two-hour jobs to respond to in Slack, that gets overwhelming. And yeah, then like right. all chat media... You just got to realize it's really best for information and logistics. It's not good for emotion. It, I mean, it's okay for humor. Like we have a little LaCroix cooler channel on the Praxis Slack, uh, LaCroix being the, the drink of choice at, at our office. Excellent job. Which flavor though? I feel like the lemon chiffon, right? I actually don't drink this stuff because I, <laughs> well, we could do a separate take on LaCroix, but I don't drink it, but all my colleagues do. Yeah. So information and logistics, awesome. Under two minute stuff awesome over two minutes bad yeah. anything that involves emotion or reflection bad mm, mm, <laughs> so mm, that's mm, my basic take on awesome Slack. number three would you give your kids a robot dog an ai robot dog no <laughs> i didn't not give a them chance. a real dog i would not give them a robot. no 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 all right number four would you own a ring doorbell that is a tricky one because we're currently renting an apartment and we have a ring door door. Okay. So I, I use one right now. Yeah. Um, so you're experiencing it with the camera. Would I install it? Would I install it on my own home? No, I think having experienced it so far. No, I do not like this will sound maybe weird and maybe it is weird. I don't like what it does to me to have that power of surveillance over mm. my neighbors in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I I don't like the voyeuristic temptation to go back and see when the delivery person came. I huh. I feel like it gives me a panopticon type visibility of people unaware that I'm looking at them. I mean, I don't abuse it unduly, but I don't <laughs> even like the fact that I have that power. And I don't like, to be totally honest, the feeling that there's a kind of temptation to use that power. Hmm. I don't hmm. like that. Yeah. Hmm. I don't hate it. I haven't asked to have it deactivated, but I don't like the asymmetric... It's yeah. one thing to go to the door in a hotel room and look through the, you know, people to see who's knocking right. at a moment when someone is calling for your attention and you have a legitimate reason to have asymmetric knowledge, right? Which is mm-hmm. the hotel room looking out into the hallway. But to have that always on mm-hmm. as people go about their lives, including serving me and my household by dropping things off, delivering things, 
coming to our door. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Yeah. Okay. I also think it is entirely a ploy. It's owned by Amazon, of course. It's an entirely a ploy to solve the huge problem in drone delivery of things, yep. which is how do you surveil how people treat the drones? So if once Amazon has cameras on every street, I won't mistreat the drones that show up to deliver the octocopter delivering my Amazon <laughs> package. I think it's all oh, fascinating. It's yeah, actually think. not about individual surveillance. It's about Amazon having a, a, a panopticon yeah. surveillance network for its autonomous tech. Yeah, they're protecting their own inventory. Exactly. One more big question we did, and I don't know if you can do this in three sentences, but we'll try. Can or should churches do communion online? Oh, I can do that in less than three sentences. Are you effing kidding me? No, no. Now, there is a thing. Post-pandemic, though, come on. You've surely, this has been a topic, of course, during the pandemic. So the churches that take communion seriously. So, you know, the problem we have right now is that there's one group of churches that take the sacrament of baptism seriously. That is, they dunk people in actual water in a way that is like being buried and rising from the dead. Mm-hmm. And they are completely discontinuous with the people who take the other sacrament that Jesus instituted seriously, which is <laughs> unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And we need to reunite these. That's like the great project of reuniting mm. Christendom. Mm. But the churches that take it seriously do reserve the consecrated host to be taken to people who cannot come to church. Mm. This is practiced by Catholics, by Anglicans, by Lutherans, all the churches that have devoted the most attention to what communion is and should be. So you absolutely can receive the consecrated host at a distance from the time and place where it was consecrated by the body of Christ, the people of God, to be the body of Christ, the representation of real presence of Christ in the world. But the idea that you could somehow virtualize the consecration of it and detach your experience of communion from a gathered community that's not just you in your private world connected through media I, I think it's a just as fundamental a violation of what communion is meant to be as, as it was in 1 Corinthians 11, when people were bringing their own bags of lunch and calling it the Lord's meal and all starting at different times, all eating at different times, all having different quality of food that they were eating, the rich eating mm-hmm. their sumptuous meals, the poor having to bring whatever they could find. And Paul says, you're not even recognizing what's going on. And I think mm-hmm. that applies very directly to any kind of virtualization in the strong sense of communion. Mm-hmm. That was more than three senses, but I answered it. <laughs> but decisive. Wow. Well, I, I have a different take, but you can, I wrote an op-ed for Christianity Today on that. You can go, you can go read that. So. Well, you are a heretic and I will pray for God to have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I have now been called a heretic by Andy Crouch. I can, I can die in peace. I have uh, no authority is, to declare you a heretic, so it's yeah. not a big deal. This is an unprecedented episode. It's fantastic. Well, Andy, at the end of every episode, Chris and I, talk about a related technology that we have some personal connection to and we declare it in the very binary sense whether it's a vice or a virtue a vice or a virtue yeah, yes I, I get where this so is going. this is our segment vice or virtue print books you are a well-established author you have multiple print books i actually have a copy of your print book here i know oh, chris beautiful chris, <laughs> the life you're looking for yes chris got a digital copy but yeah is a print book a vice or a virtue <laughs> chris do you want to go first and then i'll go and then andy goes yeah print books okay well here we go because that's 
a McLuhan favorite, as we all know. <laughs> Typography, the way McLuhan looked at the printing press and the way the, the letter T and the letter H started repeating and looking exactly the same everywhere they went. And suddenly spelling became a thing because before when we hand wrote out things, we just sounded them out. And when we started printing things, we had to figure out the same way to do it. So writing down things went from stored audio to something we apprehended with our eyes, right? That's Mm. the nerd side of the print books. But I will say print books, as you're saying, Adam, the way we have it is not the printing press. But of course, it's the turn to paperback literature that happens in the 19th century in the United States, where you know who was really big in this? It was the American Tract Society, who published pamphlets. Everywhere, and they got into this mass printing thing, and you go from where only a few people can read to some people can read to now we're finally getting to something from like 20% literacy. We're getting up to 80% literacy. So we're going door to door selling these pamphlets about, mm. you know, Christian topics. And so <laughs> I think mass print democratized knowledge <laughs> in a way that made the reading public. I think the reading public is fascinating and gave us all sorts of future knowledge. I'm going to say it's a virtue. Mm. Well, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, I, should have, I did, I did too much. <laughs> no, no, it's fantastic. You, you did like the big historical <laughs> scope. You know, for me, I just, I love having the book in my hand. I love the way that I can kind of intuitively know how much of the book I have left based on, you know, how much is under my right thumb and how much is under my left thumb. And I just love walking into bookstores that barely exist anymore and smelling all of this knowledge kind of tucked away in these dusty books. (laughs) Smell the knowledge. and Smelling all of that nostalgia, smelling all that Barnes and Noble (laughs) memory from your 90s childhood. I get it. Exactly. And I can just like interact with a pencil or pen. You know, I have Andy's book all marked up with thoughts in the margins, and it has become a record of my engagement with Andy Crouch's ideas. And I can go back and recall these things. So it is absolutely a virtue. No question. Andy, what do you think? It's a virtue. I mean, (laughs) it's not that there aren't trade-offs. And I think if, if we only had print books and didn't have other ways of interacting with the world, we'd be worse off. But, mm. but no, the code, the codex, the printed codex, a wonderful thing that lets us be heart, soul, mind, strength complexes designed for mm. love. I would say mm. I, that's mm. basically my test of any mm. of these things. Mm. So sure. Virtue, virtue. Yeah. If you had asked about ebooks, I would have said they were a double virtue. So we can. By <laughs> <laughs> uh, far more virtuous. Uh, my Andy Crouch highlights, yes. I'm able to search them right now instantly and can c- cross reference, which I feel good about my digital highlights. Well, thank you for contributing your book to our knowledge and to enabling us to have a fantastic conversation about all these ideas. There, there's so much more in the book that we did not cover. It's a good book. People should. Definitely check it out and pick it up, whether it's a digital book or a print book, I would say. Either way, either way. (laughs) The book is called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And Andy, we have been really glad to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Big thank you to Andy Crouch for joining us again on Device and Virtue. Absolutely. Andy, come on anytime. We love having you. (laughs) Find us at deviceandvirtue.com. We'll share some of our favorite quotes from the book. Oh, cool. And you can also find past episodes that we talked about in this episode with Andy. Exactly. Go find that robot dog episode. Go find the ring doorbell. Yeah, right, right, right. All of those. (laughs) They're on the website or you can just scroll on your podcast app. They'll be there, I promise. And support us on Patreon. We're really grateful to the people that have been financially supporting this podcast. Thank you. Yes. 
This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.